The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com events where you can get your tickets. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's Friday, December the 6th, and you are very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Before we get going, another reminder that the goose is getting ever fatter and our special Christmas Ask Us Anything podcast is looming ever closer. You can mail in your questions to us, however personal or pointed they may be, to politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. That's politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. You can put those questions to me and to the political team as a whole or to anyone individually, and we do particularly welcome questions sent in audio form as we love to know what our listeners Listeners actually sound like. I have also opened up my DMs at H. Linehan on Twitter, so you can send questions through there as well. Now, you may have 18 days left in your advent calendar, but there's only five days left of campaigning in the UK as the clock winds down to next Thursday's general election. And later in today's podcast, I'll be joined by Finn McRedmond to discuss what's happening in the online campaign. But first, I'm joined by our London editor, Dennis Staunton. Are you getting tired yet, Dennis? No, not yet. I will be tired, I imagine, once the whole thing is over. But we're we're in the home stretch. And so I feel as if I'm galloping along on the inside or the outside or wherever. More, more power to you. You were uh, coming back down to London from a Jeremy Corbyn rally yesterday evening. We might talk a little bit about that in a moment. But Jeremy Corbyn gave a press conference this morning, which has been leading the news headlines uh, since. And it's about uh, Boris Johnson's alleged dishonesty in relation to the agreement with the EU over Northern Ireland. Johnson has said definitively, and I quote, there will be no checks between Northern Ireland and Great Britain under his deal. He told the people of Northern Ireland to their faces, there will be no forms, no checks, no barriers of any kind. You will have unfettered access. Then look at page five of this confidential report, which will be in your hands in a moment. It says there will be customs declarations and security checks between Northern Ireland and Great Britain. It's there in black and white. Now, there's nothing actually in this document that wasn't really clear to anybody who was looking at the deal, because what we all knew, but what Boris Johnson never uh, properly admitted, was that it does actually create an economic barrier between uh, Northern Ireland and the rest of the United Kingdom. And what this document was doing was talking about the consequences of that or the possible consequences, the possible costs of that kind of friction or disruption uh, on consumers and on businesses in Northern Ireland. And so what Jeremy Corbyn was saying was that this was uh, yet another example of Boris Johnson's dishonesty. 
And uh, and I think that that's really probably the most effective part of it, because it's pretty clear that uh, voters in Britain don't especially care that much about what happens in Northern Ireland or uh, the rest of Ireland either. And so I think the details of this uh, leak probably are not going to stick around that much for most voters. But it will add to the charge sheet that uh, Boris Johnson is not exactly the most straightforward sort of politician. And the most effective charge of that sort for the, over the course of the whole election came yesterday evening, but not from an opposition politician. It came from Andrew Neil of the BBC. Yes, Andrew Neil has been running a series of interviews with all of the party leaders and uh, and a particularly uh, damaging one with Jeremy Corbyn last week. And the expectation was that Boris Johnson was going to sit down as well. But he kept talking about scheduling difficulties and sort of spoke as if... Um, uh, he was not in command of his schedule. You know, you have to speak to my press people. I, you know, I, I just do whatever they tell me kind of thing. So anyway, then it became clear he wasn't going to sit down with him. And at the end of um, Andrew Neil's interview with Nigel Farage last night, he addressed the camera and for three minutes, he spoke about the fact that, uh, you know, he was still uh, ready to interview Johnson, that uh, they had the, uh, he had the interview prepared, often ready, as Boris Johnson says, and that what he was going to talk to him about and question him about was uh, the whole issue of trust. Let's just have a listen to Andrew Neil himself uh, so that people can hear, hear for themselves. And that concludes our fourth leaders' interview for the general election of 2019. There is, of course, still one to be done. Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister. We have been asking him for weeks now to give us a date, a time, a venue. As of now, none has been forthcoming. It is not too late. We have an interview prepared, oven ready, as Mr Johnson likes to say. The theme running through our questions is trust and why at so many times in his career in politics and journalism, critics and sometimes even those close to him have deemed him to be untrustworthy. That was pretty powerful stuff from Andrew Neil there. Do you think it was effective? Again, I think uh, for those people who care about that kind of thing, I think it probably will be. I think probably what it will mean is that uh, you know the, the, both the leaders, Corbyn and Johnson, are appearing in uh, a face-to-face uh, debate tonight on the BBC. Uh, it's just the two of them. And during the course of that, I imagine that uh, Boris Johnson will have to face questions about the, about the fact that he's been dodging these interviews. He also dodged an interview on ITV uh, with Julie Etchingham, which uh, all the other leaders did as well. And so I think that, uh, you know, it's probably the, the way in which the Conservatives calculated is that it's worth taking this kind of odium now, because, again, if you talk to canvassers or people who've been on the doors, very few people really mention these kind of things. Did he do a debate? Did he not do a debate? It's not really the sort of issue that tends to cut through to a lot of voters. And so I think that, you know, the danger uh, and the risk that Johnson would have a disastrous interview with Andrew Neil, as Corbyn did last week, seems, I think, to the Conservatives to be a bigger risk than just putting up with all of us going on about it for a while. And in a way, this is classic strategy from a leader in a political two-horse race, isn't it? That he's ahead, don't do anything that might put that position at risk. Yeah, exactly. It is this sort of Ming vase strategy that they're clutching this kind of 10-point poly like a Ming vase, and all they have to do is to get across the line uh, on Thursday without breaking it. And so they're, what they're hoping is that nothing happens that changes anything uh, between now and Thursday. And uh, And if that you know, if it goes their way, then they're pretty confident that they'll come back with a majority of some kind. And that has characterised their whole campaign, has it? Including the sort of arm's length approach to to Donald Trump uh, this week, and they more or less got away with that as well. 
Yeah, I think uh, Boris Johnson was very lucky with Donald Trump this week. First of all, the fact that Trump uh, sort of didn't quite understand the question about the NHS. I mean, he's, he was asked, uh, you know, uh, about these suggestions that, uh, you know, Boris Johnson was going to sell the NHS as part of a trade deal. And Trump reacted as if he was being asked if he was going to buy it. And he said he wouldn't, you know, accept it if it was offered on a silver platter. Whereas, of course, the real question about the NHS is about things like pharmaceutical drug pricing and patents and all this sort of complicated stuff. And then the fact that, uh, you know, Trump went into a sulk because uh, he uh, some of the other leaders were caught laughing at him on video. And so he uh, flounced off without doing the closing press conference. That meant another moment of peril was avoided for Johnson. And so that visit passed off quite well. So I think the the Johnson campaign will consider themselves rather lucky this week. And I think they feel that apart from this debate tonight, there isn't really all that much that can happen between now and and Thursday, unless it's something unexpected, like some kind of expose or some terrible scandal involving Boris Johnson. And the underlying trends are, if there if there are any underlying trends at all, they're not they're not quick enough to actually change what looks like it's going to be the outcome of the election at this point. So yes, Labour is increasing its share of the vote in London, take, has taken more from the Lib Dems as as Remain voters decide that that's their their best option. But equally, uh, Labour looks in serious trouble in the the, the key West Midlands and northeastern seats as well. Yes, I think that the, what seems to have happened is that, you know, when we started this campaign, what we thought was that the Conservatives would lose heavily in Scotland, that they'd lose most of their 13 seats there, and that they would also lose quite heavily to the Liberal Democrats in the south of England. And then they had to make up this big deficit uh, with getting dozens of seats from Labour in the Midlands and the north uh, of England. What seems now to be uh, looking more likely is that they will lose some seats in Scotland, but probably only a handful of them. And they don't look as if they're going to lose all that many seats to the Liberal Democrats down in the South. You know, they will lose some probably, but they might make up for some of them by gaining some seats from Labour uh, and also perhaps picking up one seat in Wales from the Liberal Democrats. And so what that means is that the number of seats they have to take from Labour in the Midlands and the North of England is fewer. And so if, for example, they were to pick up 20 of those and there are a lot of those seats there. And these are seats which are which have been held by Labour for a long time, but have been drifting away from Labour over the years. And that drift has been accelerated by Brexit because most of them voted leave. And many people in those seats, many older Labour voters don't like Jeremy Corbyn. So if they get about 20 of those, then they probably would be in a position to come back with a majority of, say, 30, something like that, which is a, a comfortable majority. It's not a landslide victory. It's the kind of majority that Theresa May threw away in 2017 when she had that early election. And she found that the problem with the majority of that size is that, you know, she could pass her Queen's speech and she could, you know, she could stay in office. But she couldn't do all that much more in terms of anything daring with the budget. And so what you might find in that case would be that Boris Johnson could deliver Brexit on the 31st of, of, of January. But he might be able to do all that much after that. And he might find himself, were he, for example, to decide to reverse position on the negotiations or about the extension, about about pushing the extension further beyond the um, the end of next year, um, he might find himself in trouble with the hard Eurosceptic wing of his own party. 
Yeah, I think he'll find himself with not that much room for manoeuvre because he'll be caught on the one side by th- those people who will obviously be uh, you know, more numerous in the Conservative Party uh, this time than they were last time. But there are also some uh, still in the Conservative Party who w- were not full-blown rebels, but they also don't like the idea of the very hardest possible Brexit. And so, although they're going to vote for his deal, uh, they will be keeping an eye on the whole business of what kind of trading relationship he will have with Europe. So I think he will have, um, uh, you know, if, if, if it's a majority of that size, and we're obviously we're speaking a week out and we can't predict the result, but I, I think that what the polling and the anecdotal evidence would say that if the election was today, that that's what would happen, that you might have a, a majority of that kind. So I think that that might be the position he finds himself in then. Now, to turn back to Labour for a moment, um, we had Jennifer O'Connell and Patrick Frayn in here a couple of days ago and they were talking about their expeditions to various parts of the United Kingdom to talk to talk to voters. And, and one of the things that came up again and again was people who said they just wouldn't vote for Jeremy Corbyn, a real, a real visceral dislike of, of Jeremy Corbyn. It's something which he was asked about at his conference this morning and this was his response. I think Marmite's really good for you. Some people like it, some people don't. I lead the party and I'm proud to lead the party. I'm proud of the manifesto we've got. I'm proud of the activities and determination of our party members. Dennis, I remember back in 2017, uh, maybe after the fact, people said that it was Jeremy Corbyn who led the Labour surge, which which almost caught the Tories in the end and that he'd had a terrific campaign. Um, That seems quite different this time. It does seem quite different. As I mentioned to you, I was at this uh, rally with Jeremy Corbyn in Birmingham uh, last night. And uh, when he came on stage, there was uh, this chant of, oh, Jeremy Corbyn, which we heard all the time in 2017. But it it felt like a kind of an ancient melody somehow that you hadn't heard for a while this time round. And there's no question but that this enthusiasm which was there for him in 2017, which was partly to do with the fact that the manifesto in 2017 was unexpected, it was new, and it was unexpectedly popular. Uh, and so that you know, so, so that uh, allowed people to have a second look at Jeremy Corbyn. And then people found that actually he was a more attractive figure than they thought he was. I think what's happened since then is that even those who admired him in 2017 have modified their view of him in the two years since. And I think there are two main reasons for that. One is that he's better as a campaigner than he is as uh, a parliamentary performer uh, or as a leader in the Commons. And secondly, I think there, there were two issues. One is the issue of Brexit, where he was trying to, uh, you know, to walk this rather difficult path between uh, going for, uh, for a second referendum and backing Remain on the one hand, which would please most Labour voters and most Labour members, or uh, sticking to this ambiguous position, which kept open the possibility of Brexit and of supporting Brexit, because, of course, there is a substantial number of uh, Labour voters who voted to leave in 2016. So I think that you know, that made him look a bit shifty and made him look like a regular politician. And then the other issue was the issue of allegations of anti-Semitism. And this is something I think which is often misunderstood, and I think particularly misunderstood in Ireland, because what the anti-Semitism allegations are not primarily about is the, you know, very few people are suggesting that Jeremy Corbyn is himself anti-Semitic. And it's, they're also, though, not just about the fact that Jeremy Corbyn opposes the Israeli occupation of Palestine or that he has been uh, supportive of uh, the Palestinian uh, struggle against that occupation. It's actually primarily about the fact that a number of people within the Labour Party have experienced 
anti-Semitic abuse, which has nothing necessarily to do with the, the policy on Israel at all. It's simply straightforward slurs against Jews because they are Jews. And it is this sort of language. And that when these complaints were made, that Labour was tardy initially, at least, in its response to how to deal with them. Now, Labour has improved its processes since then. But uh, what Corbyn was perceived as being was somebody who lacked a certain empathy. And that's when the chief rabbi was complaining about Corbyn's handling of these uh, these allegations. What he was saying was that Corbyn didn't seem to understand that this wasn't mainly a, a matter of process. This was a human problem. And I think that that's where he also found, you know, at least when people saw how he was handling this, they again, they didn't really like what they saw. So he came into this campaign really as somebody with a much more, uh, you know, um, tarnished reputation, really, and image than when he went into 2017. And although Labour has uh, risen in the polls and his own ratings have also recovered a bit, they haven't recovered, you know, in any way fast enough. And Boris Johnson has maintained this gap in uh, personal ratings over Jeremy Corbyn, really from the start of the campaign. I'm very interested by your insight into anti-Semitism there um, in the Labour Party, Dennis. And but and while taking all your points there, what does it say about the modern Labour Party that there are people in that party who feel it's acceptable to, to kind of use those anti-Semitic slurs? I think one of the issues is just that the party expanded its membership enormously under Jeremy Corbyn. It went from, uh, you know, it, you know, it went, went from a party, I can't remember how many people it had, but suddenly it had a half a million members. And some of those people came in from, uh, you know, kind of fringe uh, uh, groups. Some uh, were people who were perhaps just a bit sloppy with their use of language. And there is, you know, and a lot of people who, uh, you know, who express themselves in an anti-Semitic way don't really think of themselves as anti-Semitic. And I think a lot of, you know, if you talk to, say, a number of people, Momentum has actually been doing a lot of good work on all of this stuff. And, uh, you know, including kind of education programs for, so that people understand that some of the tropes that they're using are anti-Semitic. And because a lot of people didn't really realize, I think, that that's what they were. I mean, I think in some cases it, it was very clear and there's clearly no justification at all. But I think that a lot of the time it was really through insensitivity and ignorance rather than kind of, uh, you know, really wicked kind of prejudice, as, as it were. But And I think also then, of course, the thing is complicated by the fact that some of Jeremy Corbyn's critics in the party have used the, uh, the whole issue of anti-Semitism as a stick to beat him with. And also there are uh, people, uh, you know, who are pro-Israel who have also used it in a particular kind of a political way. And so so when Jeremy Corbyn's allies complain about the way this uh, issue is being used, they are, are speaking with some justification. But of course, that's not a reason not to address it. And I think, I mean, I think that uh, Corbyn and those around him now understand that. But the trouble is that they came to that understanding a bit later than they might have. And what about, I mean, there's all this focus on Corbyn, but what about their actual policy proposals? The, the 2017 um, manifesto, as you said, ended up being very popular, um, the, you know, renationalising the railways and other services, far greater investment in the National Health Service. It's the kind of stuff that people want. Now, it's gone a bit further, this, this manifesto, but I don't see that much detailed discussion of the, of the pros and cons of the proposals such as free broadband for everybody. No, and I think one of the reasons for that is that there's almost too much in the manifesto. There's almost nothing, by the way, in the Conservative manifesto. I mean, it's a it's a tiny, uh, very slim pamphlet with a lot of pictures and really very few policies in it. The Labour Party 
has tons of policies. And some of them, many of them are extremely popular. Many of them are innovative and radical. And I think, again, there's a bit of a misunderstanding about Corbynism as if it's somehow uh, a desire to return to the 1970s or to return to a, a, you know, a particular role for the state. It's actually much more innovative than that in terms of the, its proposals for uh, sharing ownership and for uh, and for the so-called Green New Deal. So a lot of the policies are very popular, but there have been so many of them that I think that Labour has struggled to focus the public's attention on just a few. And so I think that that's been a bit of a problem. The other problem has been one of credibility, because uh, one of the things that happened was that, say, you know, they first of all, they rolled out this idea of the broadband before they had the, the, the manifesto that was in the manifesto and everything else was costed in there as well. But then uh, this whole issue of the waspy women who are women. Uh, who were born in the 1950s and who've been caught out because the pension age or the retirement age suddenly kind of uh, you know went up very quickly. You know they've been campaigning for a long time, saying you know that they uh, you know that, that basically they've lost out because of this government policy, and everybody from all parties says yes, this is terrible and these are fine women. It's really an awful pity, and we really ought to do something about it. But everybody also. Uh, really concluded that it was too expensive to do something about it. But after the manifesto was out, Labour then just suddenly announced that they were going to actually compensate all of these WASPy women, some of whom, of course, are you know, quite well off. But anyway, they were all going to get some kind of a lump sum payment of between, say, 15,000 and 30,000 pounds, which you know, was quite a, a decent chunk of money. And uh, But of course, it also does cost money, and it's going to cost something like 56 billion pounds. And that wasn't in the manifesto. And so uh, initially, the Labour leadership struggled to answer the question, well, how are you going to pay for it? And, uh, you know, so they finally said, well, they'd probably sort of borrow it for part of it and they'd find some of it from some other from some other source. Uh, but then they kind of said, but it isn't really kind of debt. It's moral debt. You know, it's not kind of a regular debt. You just have to do this. And then, the, you know, there have been one or two other issues since then. And, and some people, at least, I think some voters, and I was getting this when I was talking to some of the activists and talking to some canvassers last night, that some voters are saying, look, you seem to be just prepared to... Uh, to just throw everything on this carousel. It's rather like the generation game. You remember the old days and, uh, with the, with these you know, presents would all arrive on a carousel. And and cuddly, and a cuddly, always a cuddly toy, toy at the end. Yeah. Exactly. And that somehow that, the, that, that and this uh, sort of devalued the credibility of all of these other very well thought out and very popular policies. So just to sum up then, uh, Dennis, I mean, we're really on the, on the last legs, the last five or six days now of the campaign. It seems to me that what you've described is... Uh, two uh, adversaries who both have quite serious credibility and trust problems. And indeed, one of the things the polls show is that neither of them are particularly popular. In that respect, it reminds me uh, a little bit of the 2016 US presidential election. Yes. The other thing it reminds me a bit of, though, actually, is 1992 in Britain, where you had a conservative government that had been in power too long and really didn't deserve another term in power. And the public didn't really want to put them in. But they also weren't quite ready to go for the alternative. And then uh, so John Major won that election and kind of staggered on. And then in 1997, there was an absolute landslide. And so what I my feeling is, and I felt it very acutely, actually, in Birmingham last night, is that uh, the Conservative Party is out of sync with the country and uh, and its priorities, but that the opposition doesn't 
at this moment at least, seem uh, quite strong enough to uh, to deprive them of uh, another term in office. That's a very interesting reflection on which to leave it and we will leave it there but I'm sure we'll be talking next week. Dennis, thanks very much for joining us. Now, uh, social media and online targeting are an integral part of any modern political campaign and the current election campaign in the UK is no different. Finn McRedmond has been looking at the different strategies being employed by the different parties for the Irish Times. Finn, you're very welcome to the podcast. Hi there. Um, Looking at your article, um, the online headline um, reads, Battleground for Young UK Voters Moves Online. We're going to be talking about baby boomers in a couple of minutes. And um, our our listeners should be aware that uh, journalists don't write their own headlines. That's a very baby boomer kind of headline, to my view, because it's very 2007. I would have thought the online battle has been pretty important in the last couple of UK elections. Yeah, I mean, in 2015, Facebook obviously played a huge role um, in 2012, um, Obama's re-election campaign, Facebook was already playing a huge role. They were already working on some kind of form of micro-targeting. Um, and then in 2017, in the UK, we see kind of newer, kind, newer media, newer technology come into play. I think what's different this time round is not only the types of media they're using. So they're using a lot of Facebook, but they're also using Snapchat. There's talk that they might start leaning towards uh, very new apps like TikTok, but also the way that they're talking to their potential voters on these mediums. So they're not, they're not using that, that kind of traditional political, slick political advertising, slick political leafleting. Um, they've kind of really modernised their approach in that way. And I think that's really the big difference that we've seen. And so what does that involve? Is that a kind of a, a, a straining to be authentic in some kind of a way? If you... Imagine your uh, classic political leaflet that you get through your front door. You know, you've got a photo of the candidate, you've got some of their policies, you've got some party branding. For the past, you know, eight years, let's say, however long Facebook advertising has been a big thing in elections, political advertising looked just like that. It looked just like the leaflets you get through your door, Um, which is all very well and good. But people don't really speak to each other online in the way that they interact with each other in real life. You know, eventually these parties have kind of cottoned on to that and are trying to ape the style of online communication um, in their political advertising. So it looks more authentic. It's talking to people in ways that they understand. Now, I mean, there's a couple of things about the internet which anybody who's on the internet will be aware of. One is Mm -hmm. that kind of element of people are interested in authenticity and real stories and people's real lives, you know, coming to them through their phones or whatever. The other Mm -hmm. one is that there are multiple layers of irony and there are different understandings of what 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 things mean. And there's been quite a lot of talk in the last week or two about boomer memes. Could you explain what's going on there? Yeah, so a boomer meme is a low quality meme. So, you know, some images with some text overlaid on it, um, like a static photograph, usually. These kind of developed from boomers, i.e. like uh, older people using Facebook, um, trying to use memes in the way that younger people would use memes and basically not getting it quite right and it all looking a bit uncool and it all looking a bit wrong. So can you give me an example of a boomer meme? Um, yeah, so at the quite the uh, beginning of the campaign, uh, the Conservatives uh, tweeted just a completely white background, plain 
uh, almost like a piece of paper with Comic Sans in big fonts. You know, that kind of like um, silly cartoonish, yes. almost clownish font. The worst, saying, worst font in the history of humankind. Yeah, yeah quite literally. I'm um, saying MPs must come together and get Brexit done full stop with a tiny little conservative logo in the right-hand corner. Um, you know, it looks rubbish. All the text is kind of squished over to the left-hand side. The font is kind of too big. You know, it looks very amateurish. It looks like the sort of thing, you know, you might get as an invite to like a five-year-old's birthday party or something. So that got a massive amount of um, pickup from people just laughing at it. And then another example that I'm just looking at now is just this photo of Boris Johnson crudely photoshopped onto kind of like a sick green background with a hot pink text saying it's time to get Brexit done. Again, it looks like the sort of thing that um, you or I could make with, on Microsoft Paint in 10 minutes, probably less. And, and again, you saw that being circulated a lot, especially around Twitter, I guess. People just making fun of it, being like, what on earth is this? You know, this is a serious, massive political party with a lot of money and a lot of donors. Can they not afford to do something better? Can they not get a better graphic designer? But, you know, that's kind of the point. And everybody who's done that has fallen for, fallen for the trap. Yeah, yeah, they kind of have, haven't they? Because um, they're, they're, they're just spreading the message, Boris Johnson, get Brexit done. In, in terms of doing that, that obviously means that you're getting away from the old ad agency way of producing, you know, a, gl- a glossy product and aiming for that kind of authenticity. I suppose the thing is as well is that uh, if you're if you're operating at that kind of production quality level, you can turn around a lot of stuff, which is one of the things you need to do in the social media world. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. So um, for my article, one of the people I spoke to was um, a advertising expert called Charlie Palmer from a London advertising agency called Uncommon. And on these kind of memes, meme style advertising, um, he made very clear that, that, that this isn't just incredibly calculated, um, intelligent way of political advertising. It's also a quality versus quantity thing in that, you know, it's an election. Election cycles aren't very long. Producing an incredibly slick video that's two minutes long, let's say, takes time. Not only is it expensive and, it, you know, it costs labor, but it, it takes a really long time and they can't churn these out over and over and over again. Whereas with these kind of memes, you can probably make 10 in one day, fire them all out. Um, and you and you already just kind of flooded the internet with just loads of your stuff. And a really important part of, of advertising overall in general, but particularly political advertising, is just the more stuff you have out there, the more people are going to know who you are and the more you're going to be at the top of people's minds, which is cr- crucial, especially in the days counting down to an election, being top of mind of the voting. So the reach is more important than the reception then, is it? It's kind of, it, it, it's more important that it reach a lot of people than it be any good. In fact, it can be terrible, but if it still has a reach, it still works. Yeah, I think you might, in certain instances, uh, judge the quality of it on the reach that it achieves, you know? Um, not, not actually think of the quality of this advertisement and what it physically looks like, but um, in, in how many people have seen it. It's very, very hard to know whether this, the, this kind of style of advertising um, will really matter or really make a difference in this election. We know in Australia, those two kids who were hired to kind of uh, run the campaign, like the, the, the right-wing, centre-right coalition, the victory of, of the um, centre-right coalition in Australia is largely credited to this style of political advertising. But, you know, you, we'll have to wait to see the result. And even once, we ha- once we've seen the result, you know, you still you still don't know, was it because of this type of advertising or is the traditional type of advertising more effective? You know, is leafleting more effective than Facebook targeting? Is knocking on doors still the most effective uh, method? 
of all of them. So those those two young people you refer to, Sean Topham mm. and Ben Guerin, they're from New mm. Zealand and they worked on the Australian campaign. Uh, let's just hear what Ben Guerin had to say. In the peak point during the campaign, we were posting 30 posts a day and more than 200 or 250 a week. That means you have to generate and publish a new piece of content every 20 minutes. That's how you get what we call the boomer memes, because you had to crank stuff out quickly. You couldn't spend too long doing a perfectly created, like artisanally perfect graphic. You're gonna slap some Calibri font on a shitty, you know, re reused meme, and you're gonna publish it, and then you get on to the next one. And you know what? That content's gonna do better than the thing that your poor graphic designer spent a week on. Sad but true. Right, now, Finn, I, I know a little bit about um, internet business and uh, digital culture and that. And one thing I know is it's full of um, self-promoting bullshitters. And uh, <laughs> yes, um, the, the, the right-wing coalition won the Australian election. Is it really down to two young fellows from New Zealand who, uh, who put up a bunch of silly memes? Well, you know, I don't know. That guy did seem like he had a bit of an attitude, didn't it? Um, but I think... what But what he's hitting at there um, is kind of... Uh, exactly what the advertiser that I spoke to for this piece and kind of what advertisers say overall is that, you know, it was a, it was a quantity issue. He just pump, pumps out all this content as often as he can just so that all of your party or your particular group or your MP or your candidates stuff, they have the most stuff online, no matter what it might be. And, you know, there's a reason why um, people, like like companies pay to advertise on TV five times an evening, possibly, is because the more times they are see their advertisement is seen, the more effective it is. So on that very basic formula, you know, it seems like he might, you know, he he might actually be onto something, and he might actually not be just bullshitting about his own successes. That you know, we just pumped out all this stuff and we won. It it seems like a pretty obvious link. Now, obviously, these things are more complicated than that, but I I don't know. I'm I'm compelled. <laughs> um, Labour seems to have a somewhat different approach one of the advantages Labour in fact left-wing parties it seems in, in most countries have is they tend to have more celebrities on their side and people in the entertainment mm. industry um, there was, there's one clip which did seem to go kind of viral a couple of weeks ago um, which was the, the American comedian Rob Delaney who lives in the UK and mm-hmm. his, his, uh, his child um, died I think and he was very strongly uh, an advocate of the NHS because of the quality of care which, which his family received received over the course of that kind of terrible event. Let's have a listen to him. If we leave the EU under the terms of Boris Johnson's disastrous Brexit deal, then the NHS is going to be on the table. Donald Trump is going to give it to Donald Trump Jr. and Eric and Ivanka, and they're going to divvy it up and sell it to private pharmaceutical companies, and the NHS as we know it will be gone. That's a massive reason I support labor, and I support labor enthusiastically and proudly. Now, it's funny, it strikes me about that. One of the things about that, Finn, is that Rob Delaney actually in his persona on social media and on Twitter, if anybody knows him, he's kind of, he's very tongue-in-cheek, very droll, very black mm-hmm. comedy. And this is kind of almost kind of playing against that. I'm not saying he's playing against it, he clearly feels it, but there's a kind of sincerity there. Uh, mm-hmm. And something about that seemed to seem to work. Plus he's, you know, he's giving over a kind of a key plot point of the Labour campaign about the NHS and Trump, isn't he? Yeah, I think... Um the the sincerity is refreshing, as you said, because he's not usually like that. So you kind of go, wow, we must really, really mean it this time. Um, the benefit of someone like Rob Delaney intervening is that so Rob Delaney's always been very vocally uh, Labour, not just this, not just this election campaign. So people who follow and like Rob Delaney are probably gonna be interested in Labour uh, and like Labour anyway. 
So it's not like he's going to convert many people. He's not going to convert Tory voters to voting Labour. He might, he might, but, it, you know, to a, like a vanishingly small amount. Um, what people like Rob Delaney's uh, interventions do, it acts as a way to motivate a voter base. So lots of people who, who like Rob Delaney and, um, you know, kind of believe in Rob Delaney's message because he's sharing his pro-Labour stance all the time, um, and they go okay, this is, you know, the straw that broke the camel's back. I will go register to vote and I will go and vote Labour. So that, that's kind of like a very specific call to action type uh, video, um, as opposed to just like, you know, Rob Delaney, he's a cool guy. He told me to vote Labour. I was going to vote Boris Johnson. Oh, but, you know, I guess now I won't. That's not really how these sort of interventions work. And I suppose in relation to th- th- that latter type of a thing, let's say you are trying to target swing voters in a specific constituency. This is one of the major complaints about uh, about digital marketing is that micro-targeting has, carries all kinds of associated evils with it as well. One of those uh, arguable evils is the fact that most people don't get to see it. And this has been one of the things in the past, probably in the last couple of elections, isn't it? The reason why people miss these trends or the effectiveness of certain campaigns is because they're invisible in a way that traditional analogue media isn't. Yeah, I guess I guess so. I mean, and so you don't know what what the conservatives are telling their voters in Wales versus what they're telling their voters in Kent. Um, you know, the, their messages to those kind of very distinct, very different type of voters um, who have very different priorities. Um, their message, the the conservatives targeting uh, those two groups, they're not going to contradict themselves. They're not going to outright lie and um, tell Wales that they're going to do one thing and tell Kent they're going to do something just the complete opposite policy. Um, But what it can warp is what these parties' priorities are, right? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I might might believe in Wales that it is absolutely the Conservatives' priority to get Brexit done. That That is, you know, the top line of all of their literature. For example, let's say it might be the top line of all of their literature, whereas in Kent or, or perhaps maybe in a London constituency, it might be basically absent from their literature because they know that as a London resident, I probably am more likely to have voted Remain than leave. Um, so I might really like the, their top lines uh, on you know, the economy and public spending and employment figures and just completely miss the fact that, you know, actually number three on their list of priorities or number two or number one is getting Brexit done just because they haven't told me. And that's and I think that's where the kind of slightly sinister aspect comes in. And, and there are a couple of other potentially sinister aspects. One is that the sheer volume of the stuff, as we were saying earlier, there's so much stuff that it becomes very difficult to monitor exactly what messages are going out because there's, there's, there's such a mass of them. And the mm. other part, of course, is the fact that the, 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 the rules surrounding uh, the funding and the financing of this kind of material are unclear compared to more traditional ways of messaging. I think this year um, there has been a little bit more transparency because Facebook has uh, released this program called Ad Library, where you can uh, go in and you can type in Liberal Democrats and it will show you all of the political advertising uh, the Liberal Democrats had done, uh, you know, in recent weeks or months. Um, And it will show you the particular advertisement. It'll show you uh, where exactly they targeted it. It'll show you what kind of age range of people saw it. um, And it'll show you how much you know, they might have spent on it. So this is a really, really positive development, especially um, for people who are concerned about micro-targeting and, uh, cons- yeah, concerned about the slightly um, 
shadowy nature of how online advertising works but you know it's not it's it's not telling us everything it's not it's not particularly easy to use um you know you'd have to be you have to be pretty digitally native to uh figure it out and, and, it, and it doesn't necessarily cover all advertising because it doesn't necessarily cover pressure groups who so, don't self-declare as political for example yeah exactly exactly so there's there's that problem too it's not it's not perfect but i think it's definitely a step in the right direction and it might have you know, as a program, it might have teething problems right now, but, you know, you would hope that as we, um, you know, as it develops, you know, next election, maybe it will be a little bit more sophisticated. It, it does strike me looking in your article that, um, and this is something that struck me in a couple of other occasions lately, is that you talk about the Tories spending, I think, last week about £15,000 sterling on Facebook, which in the context of an election for 650 parliamentary seats in a population of 60 million people seems like kind of small potatoes. Yeah, I was quite surprised by that figure. That was um, data gathered by uh, Wired UK with Crosscheck. They do they they are doing a really great series where they're constantly analysing um, exact uh, spending on Facebook and what kind of messages they're targeting, what specific people. Yeah, that seemed quite small to me. I guess also though, what um, these figures don't capture is that might be top down uh, party headquarters spending, but MPs or individual candidates have their own budgets as well. You can find that out separately, um, but, you know, it's quite a big task to look at every single constituency in the UK and every single Conservative candidate and tally all up, you know, exactly how much they've each individually spent on advertising. And also the holy grail for all these uh, organisations, isn't it, is organic reach rather than paid reach. In other words, Mm -hmm. creating something that, for whatever reason, catches fire in the internet and everybody sees. Yeah, of course, which is kind of um, exactly, it goes back to these boomer memes that are shared massively because they're funny or they're strange or they're a bit uncanny or uh, they just look a bit rubbish. You know, they have a, you know, their moment in the in the spotlight for one day and everyone sees the message. I guess also this, this organic content, you get a lot of that from kind of like political influencers as well. So individual people who aren't paid by the party, who aren't necessarily technically associated with the party, they might not even be party members, but, you know, who really believe in their message and, you know, trot it out online to their several hundred thousand followers every day. It's not dissimilar to a celebrity endorsement, but um, it's more regular, maybe perhaps more reliable. Finally, Finn, I do wonder, um, I don't think people spotted that Tory campaign against the Lib Dems being as effective as it was in 2015. I don't think people spotted the Labour surge uh, driven by online activity in 2017. What's, what are the likelihood that in two or three or four weeks' time we'll be looking back and saying, God, we missed that thing, which was what really made a difference in the election? Yeah, I mean, it, that, that could be true because obviously the most of the focus right now, what everyone's talking about right now is this um, boomer meme style, these two kids uh, from the Australian campaign coming over, so uh, helping out the Conservatives. That's, that's capturing everyone's attention. Maybe we're missing something. Maybe we're missing the fact that Labour has spent... Um, some Guardian research found out that Labour has spent five times more than the Conservatives on Snapchat. So maybe, you know, in 2015, we, we declared it like this is a Facebook election. Maybe we've missed that this is actually a Snapchat election, you know, or maybe we maybe we will realise this time. Oh, actually, you know, this was the traditional knocking on doors election. And it's the knocking on doors that actually really uh, is really the most effective. It's, it, it's pretty hard to know, but um, I feel like at, right now everyone's pretty convinced that it's going to be the boomer meme election. Finn, thanks very much for joining us today. Thanks so much.
And that's it for today. Thanks to our producer, Suzanne Brennan, and to JJ Vernon on the desk. Remember, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, on Acast, or whatever your preferred podcast provider might be. And you can also get us at irishtimes.com slash podcast. Your views are extremely welcome. You can mail me at hlinahan at irishtimes.com or you can usually find me on Twitter. Until the next time, thanks for listening. You know, consulting firms are like onions. Layer after layer after layer after layer. You just don't get the answer or the person you need. You just get irritation. Ready for an approach with less bureaucracy? Welcome to Grant Thornton Audit Tax and Advisory. It's not status quo, it's status go. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.